So we are going to read today from Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. The title of my sermon is Paid in Full. Uh, as I've mentioned, Paul has already done some great work in sharing with the Colossians this astounding message of the supremacy of Christ, that he is in very nature God. He is before all things. He has made all things. In him, all things are held together. The brilliance of this universe, well, you know what? Give the credit where the credit is due, and it is all to Jesus. Amen. And now as he brings this thing around, in verse 8, he says, because he's, he's got a bit of a concern that the, the church in Colossae is not that far. I mean, it's the, it's the edge of Galatia. And in his letter to the Galatians, which was written probably 10 years earlier, he, he recognized that there was an encroaching heresy. This idea that Jesus is not enough. And that those Galatian Christians, if they were ever going to be full and complete in Jesus, they were going to need Jesus plus some other stuff. And that other stuff happened to be from the work of Judaism, and it is the work of circumcision that was brought their way. Now, there's some sort of a, of a heresy that is threatening the church here in Colossae. We don't know exactly what it is, because the way that it's spoken of is not just Judaism. Paul actually uses the word, it's the only time it's used in our Bible, the word philosophy. There is this a philosophy that I see coming over the horizon, and I want to put a stake in the ground right now to safeguard you against this undermining idea that would take you away from Jesus, who is more than enough in you. So let's read together in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Literally, in, in the Greek, the philosophy... An empty deceit, is what he says, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And part of the reason why most people who study this out don't think that it's just pure out Judaism that's coming in to corrupt, but that there's some sort of a synchronistic hybrid mix up, mashup of Judaism and this philosophy that is so empty. And this philosophy is based on this phrase, elemental spiritual forces of this world. In the original language, it's kind of a basic term, stoichia, which is the word that is used of the basics, the ABCs, the meat and potatoes, the, the, the elementals. But it literally means the ABCs, the, the basic elements. Now, the basic elements could, could kind of have this idea of maybe earth, wind, fire, or maybe certain uh, demonic forces that are behind some of those things. It could mean any of that. Very vague. And so we can't make a kind of a real bold statement about this is exactly what they're facing. All we know is it is something that undermines Jesus and him alone for them. But he, he goes on to say, for in Christ. And now he begins to use the phrase in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in him quite a bit as he goes through here. And you can see what it is that he's trying to do to protect the church here. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. 
When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. My first point is fullness in him. Now, as Paul goes to war here to help this church, and he starts to use martial language as he goes to war for them. And the first thing that he says is, don't let anyone take you captive. It is the, the word that would be used of a marauding army that comes in and snatches you and drags you into slavery. It is probably, there are two big ways that most of the people who ended up being slaves in the Roman Empire became slaves. The two big ones were through the conquering army that, that brings you into slavery, or number two, because you set up some sort of a promissory note, some sort of an IOU or a debt that you weren't able to pay, you, were, you defaulted on that student lo on that loan. Sorry, Paul, I just got it in my head. Uh, you defaulted on, on that loan, and, and as a result, the consequence is you end up, or perhaps your, your children end up, in slavery. Two big ways, both of them, interestingly, happen to come in view here. And both of them really then come into view to help us to see that where we are, if we do not remain steadfast in Christ alone, is really in a place of slavery. Left, anemic, impotent, unable to affect anything that would bring us liberation or deliverance. Only through Christ could that be. But now Paul says that what could come your way, despite all that Jesus has done, despite all that Jesus has made himself known to be, what could come his way would undermine the very idea that fullness is in Christ. The fullness of him. And when he uses this idea of fullness, he could have said, for in Christ, and this is one of the most remarkable statements of the New Testament, in Christ, verse 9, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. You let that just kind of marinate around you for a moment and you start to realize this Jesus is no joke. Right. Like I don't want to trifle with Jesus. Yeah, I'm not just going to kind of look at him in some sort of, I don't know, half-hearted admiration and think, oh, pretty good stuff there. Oh, well done, Jesus. You don't give Jesus a golf clap. You fall on his knees when you recognize what this says about him. But when he could have said in describing the, the deity of Jesus here, he could have said that all the fullness in deity or in the divine nature. And many would have thought that the easier thing to say here would have been in the divine nature. The two terms that sound rather similar to one another, theatetos or theates. Theates is divine nature. He says theatetos, which is an even more clear idea that all deity is in Jesus. Not just a, a nature of divinity, but deity, deity period is in Jesus and it's all in him. But then he starts to use the word fullness. Some think that because he keeps using fullness again and again, that maybe he's trying to thumb his nose a bit at the philosophy that might have been infecting this area. Not just the Judaism that was going to affect it, but the philosophy that seemed to fuse with it. That philosophy may have been something called Gnosticism in its early forms. Gnosticism was an idea that all things spiritual are, are virtue. 
and all things physical are corrupt and ought to be avoided. They are anathema. They are repulsive and repugnant and evil, basically. And anything that would be physical is evil. That's the idea there. It's a, it's a convoluted and really difficult philosophy completely to explain Gnosticism. In general, that's the idea that if you're going to have enlightenment and inner knowledge, well, then you're going to begin to realize that all this physical stuff is really nothing. And, and as a matter of fact, when we get to circumcision, some of that might even come into play there too. But let me, let me keep moving here. But he does say that in Jesus, all fullness, all fullness is in him. But on the opposite side, this philosophy that was coming, rather than being all fullness, again, as I mentioned earlier, it is a philosophy, an empty lie. Now, you may be enamored with different philosophies of this age. But if Paul were here and he heard you, let's say, prattling on about this newest idea that has so captivated or scratched your itching ears, that I, I would imagine that he would say to you, yeah, that's all fine and good. But if in any way that nudges Jesus to the side even a bit or takes any focus off of Christ, who is our all in all, we don't just have a philosophy. We don't have a construct of thinking. We have Jesus. It's the simplicity of our connection to Almighty. It's Jesus. Jesus is our philosophy. Jesus is our life. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our good news. Jesus is the gospel. To get anything away from that is empty and a deceit. And anything that moves you away from that, as subtle as it may be, as fine sounding as it may be, is a deceit and an emptiness to be avoided at all costs. Amen. But now here's the interesting part is he says, not only is all fullness in him, but then he also says, by the way, and he also, by the, he's, he's got dominion over it all. In him, all fullness is in you. In Christ, verse 10, you have been brought to fullness. In case you're getting insecure in any way, Colossae, then know this, have the security that you're in Christ. You've come to contend with Jesus. You surrendered. You made him Lord. Every knee in this body of Christ in Colossae has bowed to Jesus. So do not be insecure and do not let them knock you off of your security with these new ideas. You have all fullness in you. You are topped off. You have security in Christ. And he'll go on to explain that security in our salvation. And that's where he heads next. And so this is where he goes next, and that's my second point. So fullness in him, but also salvation in him. Because this is the thing that Paul wants to make sure is locked down for the church there in Colossae and for us as well. Because this is not a, a letter that just goes to Colossae, as we saw last week. This is a letter that goes to Laodicea. It will circulate to Hierapolis as well. This is a, a general letter that's going to make its way around. And so it's great when we know that that's the case of the letter, because that means that there's real application for us as well. And Paul's great contention is that, is that he wants to make sure that the, the centrality of the work of Christ... The very fact that the transaction, the connection, the, the uh, fusion of us with him, of coming to salvation, is not undermined at all. And so as he goes on here to say, what, what might be coming your way is the idea that circumcision is needed as well. But in Christ, we, we see already some of the things that are given to us in our salvation. Look in verse uh, 13. It says... When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made you alive with Christ. So in this state where we have now had Christ affected in our lives, we are no longer ruled by the flesh. And that's central to the idea here of circumcision. What is circumcision? It is not just simply a circumcision of, you know, a bit of your skin. Circumcision really is, and even in the Old Testament, it is is not just the putting off of the foreskin. For example, in Deuteronomy 30, Moses says, the Lord, verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Paul himself, of course, says in Romans 2.29, Circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. So, what's at stake here? Is that this Judaizing, Gnostic mashup has come into town and trying to undermine the security that you, Colossians, have already had your life ruled by the flesh, ruled by a, a self-indulgent approach to life, that has really been taken away. We're not talking about a, a, a literal circumcision, of course. We're talking about the circumcision of the heart, the great circumcision that God has always had in mind. Has that been affected upon you or not, is the question. And Paul contends that, yes, indeed, it has. You have had in Christ... Your hearts, your minds, your ears, all of these things are different things that the Bible talks about of being circumcised. So what is this idea of circumcision then? Well, it's the idea that in our natural fallen self, in our everyday before Christ nature, our nature is such that it is fallen and it is shackled to the fleshly desires and the lusts of our heart and our mind. We may aspire to great things, but we only do so because we know in the end, it'll serve our own ends. We can never know the transcendent significance of living for something greater than ourselves if we are, have not put off our sinful nature. Yeah, you may have good moments. You may have discipline in school. But at the end of the day, the reason that you do things is either because of idolatry or pride. Even the greatest of things that you do is for some sort of self-serving mechanism. It may even look selfless because that's the way you want to look. To know real liberation is to only have that excised by the work of Jesus Christ. But when we do have that life of fleshliness, we're still stuck on a treadmill of temptation and sin. And then guilt. And then the treadmill comes around again. Temptation and sin. This time! this no, Temptation and sin and guilt. Why? Because unless Christ has performed this operation upon us, that's the best that we can hope for. Now, you can fancy it up and you can medicate it and you can have escapism from it in all the different ways. That was my life. It was probably your life as well. But at the, at the end of the day, there's no fullness in that. Through many alcoholic episodes, what, what I thought were greatness and great stories and great adventures along the way. But I knew in the, uh, in the very end of it all that all that I really had was despairing slavery. And there's something that happens when other than Jesus is our greatest fulfillment. Even if it's your kids or your family or your career, if that becomes the ultimate fullness of your life, that is idolatry. That means that your security, your identity, your deliverance is when my career is there. 
when my education reaches this, when my, my, my social standing is that, when my kids achieve this. If that is what gives you your ultimate identity, that is idolatry, then we become more and more corrupted with each passing cycle of living for that rather than for Jesus. When we serve Christ, we're continually being formed into the very image of Christ. But when you begin to serve something other than Christ, that idol then begins to bring about a pollution of your very soul, your very self. And that was my life. A pollution that became to be such a cesspool of a life that I didn't even know that there could be a way out. All I could do is try to just make it more fun or more interesting or an escapism with that drug or that alcoholic episode or that achievement or that seduction. The sun comes up the next day and when it does, I'm stuck looking at myself and shivering at how empty I had become and also despairing how much more corrupted I have become. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. That was me. Oh, but don't you dare say that I'm a slave. I live my life the way I want to live my life. That was the problem. What I wanted was still nonetheless superintended by an idol, by a pride, by a flesh. And all the while, it was chipping away at what whatever was left of my character and my soul. Praise God that he disrupted my life through Jesus to help all of that come into perspective and to know the sweetness and the fullness of Christ and to know the sweetness and fullness that could actually even be me and be you as well as we come to know this. There's a lot at stake here. So now Paul now brings it home with a great bit of detail in this section. So not only your whole self ruled by the flesh, is that at stake? And also is really the great benefit that you have by being in Christ. But secondly... You were dead in your sin, and now you are alive in Christ. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sin, you are now alive in Christ. All great teachers use great word pictures. Paul, no exception. Jesus, of course, the master. The word picture that Paul uses here of who we were before Jesus and who we are after is quite vivid. Not as vivid to our society today because we don't encounter things like death. You know, in our family, just recently, my grandmom died. She lived in the home with my brother and Jennifer, his wife, and the two little girls. She died, and then suddenly even the little girls, to want to just go back and be able to, to pray with Nanny, as we call her grandma, to be able to have that time with Nanny, and then to recognize that she's dead. Right. And just what, what a vast difference it is. But we don't really ever have those kind of experiences. So the analogy might be lost on us. We just think, oh, yeah, dead versus alive, and... You might just say simply metaphorical. Well, it's not just metaphorical to this crowd that was hearing it. They had plenty of experiences with someone that was dead. And the description for us is that we are dead. There's, there's nothing more that's going to be going on. There's no great churnings and yearnings that are going inside of us. Nothing to be commended about us whatsoever. We are dead. And as a result of that, it will take something rather over-the-top magnificent for us to go from dead in sin to ever knowing what it is to be alive, much less alive in Christ. But that's what happened when salvation came our way. We went from dead in our sin to alive in Christ. That's a massive idea. The third one, though, that he says here is a big, big one for any of us who know with blaring detail 
our sins. When I think about sin after sin in my life, of, of how it was that I treated my mom, or treated my brother, or treated those girls that I saw just as objects of conquest uh, throughout my 20s. But when I think about episode after episode, it becomes so overwhelming because I also realize the filth that attends to me through all of that. And all of the massive mountain of guilt that, that is really mine. And to wonder, could any of this somehow not really be the identity of who I am? And amazingly, Paul says, he has forgiven you all your sins. Yes, even that sin, that sin that, that so shamed you, it is completely wiped away. Amen. Obliterated by the power of Jesus. Jesus brings that about to that degree. Forgiveness of all our sins. It's such a religious term that we can just kind of be unmoved by it. But forgiveness of all our sins. And then one other thing that he says here is debt free. When he says debt free, he goes on to another picture that is an intense picture. And it's why I even entitled the sermon paid in full. You are debt free, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, taking it away, nailing it to the cross. Let's say somebody comes to your house and they're a house guest. And, you know, you go to work that day and you, you come home. And it's a pretty cool picture of grace. And it turns out that your house guest, he says, you know, I, I noticed that there was a bill left on your kitchen counter. Sorry to be nosy, but it was there. So I went ahead and called up the, the number on there and gave him my account information. I paid your bill. Depending on what that bill was is probably the degree to which you're astounded by that act. Now, if it was... Let's say the kind of the overdue subscription for your newspaper and it was nine dollars you, you might be like, oh good That would have been a hassle for me to maybe have to pick up the phone and, and, and call that But you wouldn't have probably you know fallen before the person like who are you? How, how would you do something? You would do that for me in my life? Real? Oh my goodness. That's amazing But what if instead even as you were at work that day? you were trying to figure out how you were ever going to get out of this mess. You and your wife had been talking about it. Uh, the kids had overheard you even arguing about it. There was turmoil in the house because of that piece of paper that was there on your kitchen counter. And that piece of paper was not from the Virginia pilot. That piece of paper was from the United States government, the Internal Revenue Service. And that bill was for unpaid taxes that added up to more than a couple years of your salary. You've got a $390,000 bill that's there. And it's, it's accruing penalties all the while because you're not being able to make payments on it. At worst, you're going to have to get rid of every single thing you could ever imagine and still f fall well short and hope that they'll have mercy on you. Or even worse than that, you're going to jail. And then you're going to have no chance of being able to have income to make payments on it anymore. And then guess what happens to your wife and kids along the way if that's the case. But that's the bill. That's the bill. $390,000 to the IRS. And, and as you're passing, no, by the way, as you're getting ready to head out, I paid the bill. What? What? I didn't want you to see that. What, what, but what do you mean you paid the bill? Yeah, I happen to have it. So I went ahead and I paid your bill. That changes 
your life, the next generations of your family's life, maybe the next generation's family of your life as well. Who knows how far down the line that is. And even that isn't even coming close to the bill that is in view here. The bill that is in view here is this idea of a classic first century promissory note. It is an IOU that is said here. He has taken the charge of legal indebtedness that stood against you. This is the Greek idea or the Greek word of a chirographon. What, what is this chirographon? A chiro is hand, graph writing. You, in your own handwriting, have laid out some sort of, a, of a, an agreement, a promissory note of some sort. Now, this may be connected to the Old Testament, may not be. It's a, a big kind of toss-up here as to whether it is or isn't. There's a lot of Old Testament views here, so it may have to do with the, the legal indebtedness that we all have based on not living up to what it is that the law of God says. But let's just say it, it is more simple than this. It is just that Paul has in picture, for those living in Colossae, that you all know about these chirographons. It's the reason why close to half the Roman Empire were slaves at different points in their lives. And of those half, probably a significant portion of them got that way because of these promissory notes, because of these IOUs. And perhaps it is your full intention that even though you didn't have the money that you needed to be floated to keep your farm going after the kind of the, the summer solstice and the first full moon, that was the, the terms and conditions of the promissory note, that you'd be able to make payment in full. But if you don't, there are consequences. Then you need to make it right. And what is it that you would have of value to make it right? Your land? No, not your land. Your land stinks. It's not producing nothing. Who wants that? Ground's gone fallow. What do they want? They may not even want you. Rodolfo, how many years of good work you got left in you? You know what? You know, thanks for the problem. You know what? But if we're going to make if we're going to make this deal, and I'm going to lend you this money. I want little Rodolfo. Look at it. He's got so many years of labor in him. I think he's I think he's worth what I want to bring. But but this is typically. Oh, wait a minute. Look at so, Selena's got skills. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I want Selena as well. Right. So this this is what went into these notes. And then Rodolfo would you know write up the contract. He knows how. But, but if after that summer solstice, the full moon after that, if, if it comes time and, and there isn't payment in full, then sadly, then the terms of the contract kick in. And he would be walking back from his farm, back to the village, back to Colossae. They all live very, very communally. Typically what would be the case is that promissory note, that chirographon, would then be posted over his doorway as a notice to all of the other villagers you know what? This is legally binding. Don't come at me with your pitchforks because this is an agreement that we've already made. And it is why, you know, maybe a third of the Roman Empire went into slavery itself. He's using a picture that was the most devastating moment in your life. Imagine that moment if that really were the case for the Sejas family. And he comes around the corner hoping to be able to be greeted by, by, by Lindley and R Rodolfo and Selena. Instead, there's no greeting. Instead, he sees in the distance the chirographon, and he quickly does the math of his mind of what day it is, and he thinks, oh, snap, the conditions have come due, and the debt that I took on has a consequence, and the consequence is awful. And Paul uses this, a consequence for debt that is the worst thing that could come to your mind. What's worse than your kids taking into bond servanthood? I mean, off they go. You don't even know what would them be. What's worse than that? That's the gut punch. That's where his knees give out. He falls to the ground, is weeping. 
Lindley can't even come to, to comfort him because of the depth of her sorrow as well. She's just not even moving at this point. He stumbles in and they both just sob together, realizing this is the consequence of our debt. That's the power of the picture that Paul uses here. This is the grace of God that he wants us to get. And to not allow the grace of God to just be some religious term, but to let it land home in a way that we realize there's big stuff that hangs in the balance. Instead, he says, Christ has taken your promissory note. Christ has taken your IOU and he has made good on it. And by the way, he's made good on it, not just by simply paying it, out of his abilities, he made good on it by enduring the consequences of it. He got stripped, he got shamed, he got hung on a cross. And why is it that that thing is no longer hanging over your doorway? Because it's hanging on the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Paul here says that all of this has been in Jesus wiped away. There is nothing like the idea, and by the way, these vellum or parchment would have been written on with uh, ink that did not have acid at that time, so at the end it would be wiped away. It's the same word that's used in Acts 3.19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away and that time to refreshment come from the Lord. The NIV here says it's been cancelled, the charge of our legal debt. Is it? It literally, it's been wiped away. To have that thing wiped away by the moneylender, to have the future of your family redeemed somehow or another by somebody that would intervene, my goodness. But it's not redeemed by some daddy warbucks who, who brings in the bags of gold. It's brought in by someone who decides to endure the penalty that was put upon there for you so that justice would be served. Now, this chirographon is interesting because the word is also used in relation to the security that you're meant to feel knowing that you are in Christ. And when is it that all of this happens? When is it that you are no longer dead but alive? When is it that the forgiveness of all your sins has occurred? When is it that the debt that is charged against you is completely taken away and obliterated? When is it that all of this occurs? And when is it that yourself, ruled by fleshliness, is liberated? When does all of this occur? Well, he says in verse 12, the very verse before this, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When, when does this occur? At this point where you have been buried in baptism and raised with Christ from the dead. Now, the word that is describing baptism here is a baptism that is a kierapoito. That is made without hands. The reason I bring this up is that the minute that the Bible speaks so clearly about baptism having to do something with either the forgiveness of sins, the removal of fleshliness, the redemption of our souls, the ending of our debt, or going from dead in sin to alive in Christ, everybody wants to say, well, baptism can't have anything to do with that because baptism is a work and we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace in Christ. I get that. Who doesn't get that? Who would, who would ever think we're saved by baptism? But the Bible says that while we are saved by Christ, saved by faith, saved by the blood, saved by his mercy, saved by his intervention, when and where does God bring all of this about? In baptism. But isn't it a work? This is the interesting part. Whenever the Bible speaks of baptism, it goes out of its way to say that it is not a work. But yet so many continue to say, but it's a work. 
Where does the Bible say that it's a work? Nowhere. In Titus, we were saved not by the righteous work that we have done. We're saved through his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's Titus 3, 4, and 5. Because of his mercy, not because of any works that we have done, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That word washing back in Titus 3, 5 is the word for a big wash bin. It's not a verb. It's not a gerund. It's a noun. It is a big wash basin. You were saved through the big wash basin of rebirth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Here, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith and the powerful working of God is described as an act that is a kiero poite. A, not in Greek, kiero, hand, poite, work. It is not a work done by the hands of men. But it is one, as it says here, done by Christ. So that you know that you are in Christ, by Christ, through Christ, and just so that the security that is yours, Colossae, is secure enough Know that it is not some sort of a mystical, amorphous situation where you feel something or perhaps respond in, in a prayer to something. No, he's like, it's so much more definitive than that. And the fact that it is so definitive and experiential lends to the gift of grace. Amen. Isn't it such a more beautiful gift that it's so clear rather than vague? And how wonderfully clear it is that when we are baptized... We are being buried with Christ in that baptism and raised through our faith in the working of God. By the way, all of those verbs are passive. Nothing that we do, something that is being done to us. But to try to rip that away and try to instill a human tradition or command, as Paul warns against earlier, is to undermine the security that is meant to be the church. The fact that you have so clearly been saved needs to be clearly secure to you. And I may have a plenty of terrible days in my life, but I never doubt that on March 17th of 1993, that I was buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him through my faith in the working of God. But yet, a lot of churches say, well, baptism is merely an outward sign of an inner working of God. Baptism is a statement to the church. Baptism. There's a lot of phrases that they use. Here's what's interesting. I went through a website of many of the bigger churches in our area. They all say something exactly like that, by the way. Not one of those phrases appears in the Bible. But yet, here's what the Bible says baptism is. Repent then and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what Peter says. How about what would Paul understand? How about Paul? He wrote this. What would Paul's experience of baptism be? Well, let me, let me read you his experience. When, when he was, you know what? Hell-bent for killing Christians on his way into Damascus. Jesus intervenes in his life, sees a vision that knocks him to his feet and blinds him. And then he ends up in a place where he's praying for three days and fasting for three days. He has already called Jesus Lord. He has already obeyed him. And then all of a sudden, God sends Ananias to him in Damascus. And... As God comes to Damascus, the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord. The Lord said, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying in a vision. He has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said, Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument. 
to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Saul is already being regarded here by God as his chosen instrument. That's pretty big, right? And, and, and don't forget, he has repented. He's called Jesus Lord. He's been obeying and he's been fasting and praying for forgiveness for three days. And in verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. Now, this is a pretty cool story. And if he walked away then saying, you know what, I think that's when my sins were forgiven. You would say, yeah, sounds about right. I mean, after all, you had repented, you, you'd called Jesus Lord, you actually had an experience with Jesus personally. He already made you his chosen instrument to go and preach to all the world. You were told by a man of God that you would be his chosen instrument, and you were healed miraculously by a man of God. Wow, that's pretty good, Paul. Only one more thing. The very next thing that Ananias says to him after all of this has gone down, he then says... Hey, and um, he said, and what are you waiting for? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, immediately he got up and was baptized and after taking food, regained his strength. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to read one, one, one other account of this. At this very moment in, in Acts twenty two sixteen, after all of this has gone down. Now, what are you waiting for? Ananias said, get up. Be baptized, Acts twenty two sixteen, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Do you get the depth of that? Does he still have his sins? Yeah. Obviously so. Until this point. Right? Up until this point. Until you, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away. Meaning that you still got your sins. But what about the, the Lord and my confession and Jesus is Lord and, and I prayed and all this? Well, God, in giving you the gift, wants you to have the gift in such a certain and secure way that you need to receive it the way he wants to give it. And does that mean, like, oh, God is being too exacting or meticulous? No, God knows that it's very easy to doubt your salvation down the road. And if we don't receive it in the way that he wants us to receive it, it's very easy to begin to doubt it. And if you receive it at an altar call and you never find an altar call salvation in all of the Bible, well, you might begin to doubt that down the road. But if you receive it, and by the way, how absurd is it that if in an altar call, that's when you are forgiven and made new and brought to new life, that suddenly you've been made alive when you were dead in your sins, then how odd would it be in those churches to say, oh, by the way, we're having a baptism ceremony next week. We'd love for you to come. I think if I were there, I'd say, but why are you having a baptism ceremony for people who are made alive? You want to bury live people? Is it when we are dead in our sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh? That's when we are buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him to new life. Anyway, I know that this is clear for, for many of us scripturally, but I think own this. Own the idea that you had circumcised ears. I think it's what Jeremiah says, why people can't see this. He says their ears are uncircumcised to not be able to see the clarity of this. And so they want to stick to the tradition of the church that, that practice something else when there's such clarity in the Bible. Celebrate the certainty. He gave it to you. 
with absolute security for you to have. And so you do have salvation in him. And just to close out, not only do we have fullness in him, salvation in him, triumph in him. I love this last little phrase here in Colossians where it says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The military language keeps pouring forth. This is the idea of a, of a Roman conquering general who has not only overcome the, the enemy's uh, army, but he has so overcome them that he has stripped them of their weapons, humiliated them, paraded them naked, and now made a public spectacle of them. This is the very thing that Jesus has done. All of these empty philosophies, all of these alternate ideas, all of these other ideas of salvation, all of these other approaches other than what Jesus and the Bible gives us for, for really being united with Christ, all of these things Jesus has already obliterated. And yes, they thought that they were holding him up to public contempt, naked and ashamed. In fact, that was his moment of triumph. Now they are naked and afraid and ashamed and in, in public contempt. Uh, and, and in the end of time, all of this will be brought around. Uh, closing charge, make a list of the things from which you've been delivered as you prepare for Thanksgiving this week. This Tuesday, we'll have a time of Thanksgiving. And, uh, and please, be, be ready for that. This is a big passage. This is one that gives us the clarity of not only who Jesus is, but who we are in Him and how we can be sure. Celebrate it as you contemplate these things this week. Thanks.